So Pastor Chester Roy Harder II asked me today what I was... It's Junior, yes, that's how I, that is the right way. Uh, asked me what I was going to preach on tonight, and I said, can we trust our Bible? And he said, that's easy, yes. So I'm going to pray and dismiss us, unless you want to hear the rest of the story. Yeah, thanks, Chet. I love you too. But just in case you've ever wondered, some interesting facts about the Bible. Fact number one we get to is how many books are in the English Standard Version of the Bible? 66. Okay, I'll give that one to you. That one's easy. Yes, the English Standard Version of the Bible has 66. Let's see, question number two. How many chapters are in the ESV? Now, I just want to kind of see hands here. How many say 765? Okay, I got a couple. How about 1,189? I got a couple more. How about 657? All right. How about 106? Who raised for B? 1169 it is. There you go. Okay, question number three. Some more stimulating. Oh, this is a good one. How many verses are in the ESV? Are there 1,023,105? No takers. How about 245,678? Only a couple of you. Okay, how about 31,086? 1,015? Boy, I kind of fooled you, didn't I? I said 31,086? Nope, 245. There you go, B. Okay, how, we'll see, what's the next question? What is the shortest book in the Bible remembering that the verses are not inspired. So this is going by actual numbers of words in the original language. Is it Obadiah? Couple of you. How about John eleven thirty five? Is that the shortest book in the Bible? What is it? Shortest verse in the Bible. We got some Awana people here. Very good. Okay. How about second John? Which is going to be shorter? Second or third John? Who says second? Who says third? Yes, in fact, there, uh, you know what? I thought I'd copied my answers, but I don't have my answers. Third John is about 40 verses shorter than Obadiah, and it's about 30 verses shorter than, or not verses, words, shorter than Second John. Okay, next question. Ooh, how many words are in the Greek New Testament? 25, 26,000? Anybody say 26,000? Anybody say 138,000? A couple of you. How about 75,000? Oh, that's, that's a good guess. How about 60,000? You didn't see that I put Satan's number on there, Chester Roy Harder Jr.? <laughs> Sorry. I have to embarrass him. It is 138,019. And now we're going to find out in the Old Testament, this is this at all interesting to you, or is it just my geekiness that makes this hilarious? I'll just tell you, this, one is, this one's easy. If the New Testament is 138,000, the Old Testament is not quite three times the uh, size, and you have 309,000. But the last question is the important one. I want to know, who is mentioned more times in the Bible than any other person? And we're not counting 
God or he or him. We're just counting uh, these four names are the top four. So which one is the most? Is it Abraham or Abram? Any takers for Abraham? He's the earliest one, so he's got the most of the Bible. Okay, you got it. Okay. How about Jesus? Who thinks Jesus is mentioned the most? Okay. How about Moses? How about David? Yep. I knew that Benji was going to get that one right. David is not only the most, but far and away the most. It's almost 500 times more than Jesus, who is the second. Okay. Now, are you going to go home and memorize these facts? I got a couple of yeses, okay? Don't do that. That would be a complete waste of time because this is called meaningless Bible trivia. But there's a point to it that I want to make out of this. And that is that, yeah, there's certain facts and figures about the Bible that really aren't that crucially important to your day-to-day life. But here is a question that you need to bet not only your life on, but your eternity. And that is, can I trust my Bible? Can I trust my Bible? If you look at your notes on the sheets that's um, titled, Can I Trust My Bible? I made a square around a box. And I want you to picture with me. It was hard to put on there. But if we're going to get from God's mind, where Scripture originated down to our mind where we receive it, there's going to be at least four steps in how to do that. The first step is revelation. God needed to reveal His Scripture. The second one is transmission. It needed to go through history and get to the point where we could actually read it. And then unless you read Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, you're going to need to have it translated And lastly, it needs to be interpreted. And this is how God speaks His mind, His heart to us, and we get it. So I want to go over this, and I don't have any blanks because it was hard enough to get everything to fit in there. But I want to go over a couple of key ideas that will help you understand how God's Word got from His mind into ours. And the first point that we're going to discuss is revelation. Revelation is God revealing what He wants us to know about Him, His world, and us. And so there's, there's been some uh, words that have been thrown around, and one of them is verbal inspiration. Uh, verbal inspiration speaks to the fact that God spoke each and every word of the text. Each and every word that he spoke was very important, and which is why he spoke this. And just one Bible verse that explains this a little bit is Matthew 4 4. Jesus answered Satan when he was tempting him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus considered it more important than eating that you understand that God's Word is the basis of our lives and each and every word that comes from God's mouth. Not only is God's Word verbally inspired, it's breathed out 
by God, but it's also this word plenary, plenarily uh, inspired. And that speaks to the extent of the inspiration of God's Word. And that is God spoke all the words of the text, every word in the Bible, not just each and every one, but all of them together. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out from God. This is where we get this idea of inspiration. God, well, here's expiration, but God is breathing out into uh, the Word and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so, we take these two ideas, that God spoke each and every word of the text, and He spoke all of the words of the text, and we come to this idea of inerrancy. And inerrancy is a word that has been tossed about back and forth, and and a lot of ink has been spilled on this. But here's what I want you to understand about the Bible being, in fact, inerrant. And that is the Bible is completely true as it is meant to be understood. I.e., some of the language of the Bible is phenomenological. Say that five times fast. In other words, it talks about the sun rising and the sun setting. Does that mean we believe the sun spins around the earth? No, but as we experience it, when we're watching the sunset, it looks like it's falling into the ocean, doesn't it? And other times in, in passages of poetry, it describes God as wanting to guard His brood, guard His people under His wings. Does that mean God is a chicken? No, but these are ways of... Thank you for laughing. I, I always appreciate a good laugh. These are ways that God speaks to us in ways that we can hear in our heart. And so I want you to know that the Bible is absolutely, completely true in as much as it was meant to be understood uh, when you're looking at a specific passage. And that is this idea of full inerrancy. And as a side note... um, I'm not getting into a lot of the details. There's a lot more to be said. If you have any question, if you know about these other theories of inerrancy and you want to talk to them about about them with me, we can talk, but I don't want to confuse the issue. Full inerrancy is the one at least that I hold. But now, here's a problem. If God's Word was verbally and plenarily inspired, and if God's Word is fully inerrant, then we have to assume, we have to mean by that, the text as it was originally given to, for example, Isaiah. Well, nobody was there with a video camera while Isaiah was writing his original text. And so we... And we don't have what's called an autograph. The actual text that... Actually, he'd be writing it like this. The actual text that Isaiah wrote. So, we have the problem of transmission. And how did the text get from Isaiah's pen when he was writing it to the actual Hebrew text that we have today? And the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament are important. And what I want you to understand, if you miss some of the dates 
in some of the words, what I want you to get from this is that the transmission worked very well. So prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I'm, man, I, when I was writing this, I was tempted to get into all this. Dead, Dead Sea Scrolls were some uh, parchments that were found in south in the south of Israel, around the Dead Sea. Uh, they were found about 60 years ago, and they refer back to approximately 150 B.C., uh, they go back in terms of actual written text of the Bible. So prior to that, the oldest entire copy of the Hebrew text is the Codex, Codex Leningrad. It's the whole Bible in Hebrew. And this is dated at 916 A.D. Now the rabbis, what they would do when they would copy their text, very often they would destroy the older text so that we don't have a lot of information about how those texts went through the history. And so the oldest one that we have was written about 916 A.D. Now we believe that the scholars and the rabbis in the Council of Jamnia, which was approximately... Uh, the time when the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, 90 A.D., they were the ones who standardized the Old Testament Hebrew text. Okay, so about 90 A.D., they standardized it. About 916, we have a copy. We don't have any other copies in between that time. So we have to go back and we have to find some other copies of the text to compare them to to see if they match. Well, fortunately, this Bedouin boy chucked up a rock into a cave and heard this thunk. And he went up there to see and he pulled out some dirt and he found these old clay jars that were filled with, among other things, texts from the Bible. So, now I'm going to take one of those texts was from the book of Isaiah. And this is called the Isaiah Scroll. And it's very famous for a very good reason. And in this text concerning uh, Isaiah chapter 53, what's interesting is there are 13 instances of the reading from the scroll of Isaiah that was written approximately 100 B.C., there's 13 instances where it differs from the Isaiah scroll, the Isaiah Codex, written in 916. I want you to hear the importance of this. 1,000 years passed. In the meantime, that we don't have any copies and what we find are 13 differences. Of those 13 differences, nine of them are of spelling. So they mean nothing. They, they, you know the word they're trying to get. And four of those instances are just minor changes that would be completely understandable. And it doesn't change the meaning of the text at all. What I'm saying is that there is no difference. Functionally, what we get out of reading the text that was written in 100 BC and what we get from the text that was written in 916 AD is functionally zero difference. Now, 
Why is that important? Why should I go into all of that? It's because of this. The Jews were famous for being, how should I say it, anal about copying the text. They were exact to the letter exact in transmitting the the text. So what that means is what Isaiah wrote we have. If Isaiah's work was verbally and plenarily inspired, and if it has full inerrancy, what we have today is essentially the exact same thing. You can trust it. You can trust that you are holding God's Word in your hand. Now, that is what's true for the Old Testament. And uh, admittedly, Isaiah is the pr- prime example. We don't have uh, the whole Old Testament like that, although we do have quite a bit of it. And even though it doesn't all pan out equally, it is amazing how accurate it is. Now, the New Testament is slightly different. The New Testament is made up of the 27 books uh, written after the time of Christ. And they were written in the language of Greek, the Greek language, Koine Greek, which just means common Greek. Koine Greek is what they would have spoken at the Boston uh, shipyard, you know, just the common guys. This is not the university Greek, that's Attic Greek. But this is just the common, ordinary people. And by the time you get to the first century AD, there's a lot more people that can write. There's a lot more people that have access to parchment and other things and vellum that they can write on. And so it stands to reason that you get a lot more people who are not going to be quite as careful in their transcribing of what you got. So in order to establish the reliability of any ancient document, by the way, if you go to a classics department at UCSB, they will actually probably not know this because they really don't care. But if you found somebody who cared, this is what they would say. And you ask them to establish the reliability of Caesar's Gallic Wars, for example. How sure are you that what you have in your volume of Caesar's Gallic Wars is what was originally written? And the answer is you have two tests. The first test is how close are the existing documents to the time of the subject or the, or the writer? How close in time was what we have written to when these events happened? And then second, how many copies of the documents do we have from the earliest ones until about the middle of the 15th century when the printing press was developed? The first test measures for the time that is available for possible errors to creep into the text through scribal errors. And the second test measures the availability of comparing the documents to see what was in fact written. Now the number of these manuscripts and the quality of those manuscripts establishes the reliability of the text of the New Testament. What we have, and my numbers are not new. I didn't go online. I I probably should have seen if there's newer numbers. But as of when I um, studied this, well, um, one of the books I was relying on was printed in 1986. So there you go. There are more than 10 
2,000 fragments or complete manuscripts of the Old Testament. 10,000. These are Greek portions or entire uh, volumes of the New Testament written in Greek. So the scholars, and there are nerds who do this, they go through and they match up letter by letter, word by word, to see what it says and how it compares. It's amazing they did this before computers, but they do. And by the way, just as a side note, Homer's Iliad is the most attested ancient writing other than the Bible. The Bible has 10,000. Homer's Iliad has 63. That tells you there's a lot more evidence for the fact that the Bible is what the Bible says it is. Some of the manuscripts that we have are as old as the 2nd century B.C., um, and many are as new as the 12th century B.C. We have, uh, <laughs> we have embarrassment of riches. Uh, the first fragment of the Gospel of John, depending on when you um, date, is within 45 or 65 years after he wrote it. So there's not a whole lot of time for people to write over and over and over and make mistakes. Not only that, but the quality of the manuscripts agrees enormously. What scholars have come up with, and I, I don't want to over overstay this, there are lots of different errors and there's lots of differences in the writing. But when you have 10,000 manuscripts, this is what you would expect. But when they get to the point where they're actually comparing these two, are all 10,000, what they find is that by far the majority of the errors or the mistakes that are found in the text are, again, the same as found in Isaiah. They spell words differently. And over time, you get people spell words differently, and that's, that's the way it is. Some of the errors are they wrote the same word twice, or they wrote words out of order, or they flipped lines when they're copying. These are errors that are easy to get. But there turns out to be almost 2% of errors that end up being relatively significant errors. Either uh, passages are added or passages are, are taken away or um, key words are added in several places. Uh, if you've been in Sunday school for any amount of time, usually your Sunday school teacher knows about this and will say something about you know, John chapter 8 or Mark chapter 16. If you have questions about those, we can talk about those. Or uh, the, the other famous one is in 1 John, I think it's 4. Is that where it is? 4 or 5? It's out. Uh, 1 John 5, where there's some words that have been added. But my friends, none of the key beliefs, none of the essential teachings from God's Word are affected by these mistakes, by these additions or subtractions. None of them. All the key doctrines that you believe that we teach come from verses that are solid, that we know what they say that they say. And you can trust your Bible because God superintended it getting to you. You can know you can know that you know that what Isaiah wrote, what Paul wrote is here. 
and the documents that they use to translate this Bible are excellent documents. You can trust your Bible. Um, now, uh, I loaned my Geisler Nick's book out, so I think I got this from their book. But uh, I liked, I, I especially liked how they put it. You can trust that your Bible is genuine. The Bible is not deceptive. The Bible is what it claims to be. The Bible is God speaking to you. And when you have this in your hands and when you have it in your heart, you can know that it is what it claims to be. Secondly, the Bible is authentic. The Bible is historically accurate. It is not exaggerated. This is kind of a side note, but uh, when archaeologists go to the Middle East, they want to find where some city is. They take their Bibles with them. Why? Because it's documented. And although there are things that are, well, we don't get how this matches up yet, it has always panned out. Now, when archaeologists go to Central America, guess what they don't take with them? The Book of Mormon. Because it is not archaeologically sound or accurate. Thirdly, you can trust that your Bible is pure. It was what was originally written. And this, yeah, 98.33% pure. That was the, the quote that Geisler and Nix threw in there. That's the New Testament in other words, they're saying here that about 1.67% are the mistakes that we can't really account for. Uh, and if you're interested, I know uh, Pastor James has a copy of the book that goes through and describes all these. Really, it'll cure your insomnia. Um, it goes through and describes every single one of these mistakes and tells you how you got it or um, how sure we are about it. But what I want you to know is because the Bible is genuine, because it is authentic, because it is pure, it is also credible. The Bible is believable. And the Holy Spirit Himself ensures this for everyone who humbly and prayerfully reads it. But for those who merely treat it as a historical curiosity or merely allow their eyes to pass over the black and white, God doesn't do anything for them. Don't be one of the people who merely allows your eyes to glance over the black and white. This is God's Word. Don't treat it with disdain, but go to it. Find in it what you need. Famous theologian Karl Barth got the truth half right when he said that the Bible becomes the Word of God when you humbly and prayerfully read it. The half that he got right is the Bible is the Word of God, whether it collects dust on your bookshelf or whether you humbly read it. But when you go to God's Word, when you go and find out what He says to you, you will meet Him there. And that is why you can trust it. So then, the question becomes, if I know that God spoke His Word. And if I know that His Word has made it through the centuries, why are there all these translations? Why are there so many different translations? And I'll tell you the main answer for that. It's money. 
Businesses have figured out that the more translations they kick out, the more money that the printers will make. Okay, so that's a little jaded. But the other reason why there are is because, frankly, people want to get into God's Word and they want to bring it out and they want to help you to do the same thing. And so what I want to do is I want to help you understand the philosophy at a very basic level of translations. First of all, understand that translation is the work of men and women who try to convey what the Bible says in the original language and make it correct for contemporary readers. Make it so that the words make sense, that the words are correct. So why are so many translations different? The first answer is the differences between the translations are often exaggerated. If you're reading in your Sunday school class and somebody has a different version and they start reading, sometimes it's kind of jarring. You think, wait a minute, that's not what mine says. But if you really hear what they're reading and then really pay attention to what you're reading, very often so-called conflicts just melt away because you realize they're just different ways of saying the same thing. And so this idea that translations are so different is often exaggerated. Now, it's not always exaggerated. I don't want to overstate my case. But translations are also called versions. Versions are the scholar's way of saying translation. There's a new international version. There's the English standard version. And there are others that call themselves versions. And so there are nowadays, uh, in this contemporary time, we have primarily two styles, two philosophies, two thought processes of how to make an accurate translation of the Bible. The first is called formal equivalence, and the second is dynamic equivalence. We'll talk about paraphrases in a moment, uh, but formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. And a formal equivalence emphasizes correspondence to the original language. It tries to get at what the original language says and be correct to what it originally said. Dynamic equivalence emphasizes correspondence to the target language. It tries very hard to make it so that you can understand it in your own language. Now listen to me. That's a hard balance to keep. It is a difficult balance to keep. And I freely admit, I have not done any serious translation work in 15, however many years it's been. It's been a long time doing actual translation work. But I remember struggling, trying to think how to make this, this. And the guys, people who do it, do this all the time. Now, uh, oh, and I gave you some examples. The King James Version is the, uh, the, the famous formal equivalence. They stuck, they tried to stick close to what they were saying. But even they weren't perfect. Even they, oh, am I going to get stoned for that? I'm sorry. Uh, let's, let's, let's use NASB. Even they weren't perfect at it. I see one of you laughing. Um, and what happens is while they're trying to stick close to the text, they also have to vary it so that you can understand it because you don't think like a Hebrew or a Greek. But then we get to what we call paraphrases. And uh, Eugene Peterson 
translated or paraphrased the Bible in the message. And he said that paraphrases seek to convert the tone, the rhythm, the events, the ideas into the way we actually think and speak. Now, here's the point. If you are studying your Bible, you want to stick with the English Standard Version or the New International Version. You want to stick with something that's trying to stay true to the text. If you're just reading, then the paraphrases are fine. Now, this is my opinion. I'm about to tell you my opinion. I'm not telling you gospel right now. My favorite version is the English Standard Version. It has been since approximately 2006 when I, when I really discovered it because I think it does a great job keeping the verbs in the New Testament right because that's the hardest part to translate. They're the verbs in the New Testament. Um, the NASB also does a superlative job on the verbs, but it, the syntax isn't so clear. It, it's, it's, it's wooden and it's harder to get at. The NIV is excellent because it flows a lot cleaner than certainly the NASB and, and does a good job um, compared to the ESV as well. But I personally, that's what I like. Now, if I'm just reading it and I do this from time to time, I have a New Living Translation on my bookcase in my office, and I have a New Living Translation in my bookcase at home. And if I just want to read, for example, Matthew, uh, as I did a couple of months ago, I'll just break out my NLT because it's really easy to read. It doesn't uh, take a lot of intellectual work because they do that work for you. Uh, It's brought down on a lower grade level. I don't remember what the grade level was. But I wouldn't use the NLT for real study is what I'm saying. If you really want to study God's Word, get an ESV, get an NASB, uh, get an NIV. These are the books, these are the Bible versions that you should trust. And, by the way, it wouldn't hurt to have all three of them open in front of you, either on your computer screen, because you can get that for free, or on on your desk as you're studying so that you can compare. And sometimes the differences in the languages will help draw your attention to something that, oh, something's going on there and I need to find out what it is. And then you can go online or call your favorite pastor or buy a commentary. So, again, as I said, those are uh, the versions that I like the most. Now, our statement of faith here at Grace Baptist says concerning the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It is fully inspired, as I said a few moments ago. It is without error in the original manuscripts and written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. And my friends, that is exactly correct. That is, obviously, I have to say that, but it is true. Is true, And you can trust the Bible that's in your hand to be the very source of life that Jesus promised in John chapter 17. Now, we covered a ton of ground there, and I have one more to cover before we go. I hope you have questions. Come see one of us, and we'll talk to you about this. But right now, I want to get to the most important, the most real question you, If you will believe me that these three steps prove that you have a Bible that you can trust, now we have to ask the question, how do I trust it? What does it mean to trust it? 
And that involves interpretation. And so there's three questions. The first question is, what does it say? What does the Bible say at this moment, in this passage? The second question is, what does it mean? And the third question is, what do I need to do about it? How do I change my attitudes, my beliefs, or my actions? So I picked a verse uh, concerning the Bible. And that, uh, I don't, we didn't get it up there, but here's the verse. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So my first question I ask when I read this is, what does it say? Okay, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. What does it say? Unbelievers are unable to understand God's teaching because God's teachings are understood spiritually. And Paul says, these are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, natural, as we look at this, as we look at this passage, if you go into your concordance or you go online and you start picking out words in that verse that you don't understand or, or you know, ooh, I bet that is significant to the meaning of this passage. I'm just picking on the natural person. Now, natural in this case has been used several times in the, in the New Testament, and I chose two of them to address. In 1 Corinthians 15.44, natural means merely physical, not awakened spiritually, not one who is a Christian. And so that obviously helps us to understand what Paul is saying in the natural person. This is not a spiritual person in the sense of being a Christian. But secondly, the word is also used in Jude, in verse 19, then it talks about worldly people who cause division. So if I bring these two passages into what it says, I'm sorry, we're in what does it mean now. I have to find out what does natural person mean. So I look at these other two verses to tell me what this means. And if I were to do this and do it fully, we would spend some more time understanding folly. We would spend some more time understanding spiritually discerned. But these are just two words that I found that you can find. If you go to Bible.org, is a great place where you can go. Go on some other websites Uh, talk to one of us. We can help point out some of these. But you will find some excellent material for free that will help you understand each of these words. And you'll find other verses that point to this meaning. So what does it say? What does this text say? What does it mean? What does the rest of the Bible help you to understand? And then, what do I do about it? How can I change in my attitudes, my beliefs, and my actions. And this, um, you, again, you can make this as complicated or as simple as you want. But this one, we're actually pretty fortunate because if you keep reading the passage, if you follow the train of thought from where Paul is starting in 1 Corinthians 2, it gets you all the way to almost the end of 1 Corinthians 3. And Paul himself gives us an application. He gives us a way to change in 
our attitudes, our beliefs, and our actions. And I'm going to take this from 1 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. What's the application of this? Stop lying to yourself. Stop believing what you know to be a lie. Stop chasing after the things in this world that are just lies, that they don't get you anything. And then he says, stop trusting in your own wisdom. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. Humble yourself before the Lord. My friends, if you forget everything else I say tonight, don't forget this. Go to God's Word humbly. Say, God, I need you to help me understand this. And lastly, trust God's promises. Trust Him because the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Trust His promises instead. So if we have God's Word that was revealed from God to us, then we have God's Word has been transmitted to us down the centuries to the point where we're at now. And now the godly men and women have translated the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek so that we can actually read it. Then we can interpret it. But one final question remains so that we know that we know that we know that we can trust the Bible. And that is, does God ever speak to me when I pay attention to His Word? And the answer comes in John 10.27 where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. God's Word, you can trust God's Word to make you the person you were created to be. If I can reiterate one thing that Pastor Benji was preaching this morning, God is making you to be the best, best version of you possible. Now this best version of you will be fully 100% human and this best version of you will be fully 100% you not someone else. If you are going to God's Word, if you are allowing Him to speak to you, He is changing you to be the best version of you. Not Mother Teresa, not Billy Graham, not anybody else. You can trust Him, and when you do, you will be amazed beyond words at what He can do in you and through you. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, I pray that my brothers and sisters here will have gained some confidence in knowing that the Bible is God's Word and therefore it can be trusted. And Lord, I pray that You would help us to live by it by asking questions like, what does it say? What does it mean? And how can I obey it? And Lord, that we would, with that, turn to You and find You faithful. We love You, Jesus. Amen.